Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of the Dundeal Football Podcast. This week, uh, we go back a little bit in time to uh, a charity event that I set up with Dr. Erkut Sogut, um, a fantastic football agent that I work alongside on a number of various matters. We talked about his career journey to date, some of the funny stories that he's encountered and personalities he's dealt with along the way, and just opening up um, about his processes, the way he deals with particular challenges and his hopes for the future. I hope you enjoy it. Firstly, thank you everyone for coming. It's great to have so many um, familiar faces um, on the crowd tonight. Um, most importantly, very much thank you to, to Erkut. I've, I've known Erkut now for maybe three or four years, uh, professionally and personally. Um, and without saying too much, and we'll go into that detail, one of the, the UK and Europe's top, um, top football agents. And we're absolutely delighted to have you um, with us tonight to, to talk about football, which is the reason why we're here in part. What you guys might not know, um, about Erka is that actually he is very much an honorary Jew. Um, <laughs> the reason why that is the case, um, he lives in northwest London, his son goes to a Jewish nursery, he has a slight affinity to Arsenal, and knows more Hebrew than me, I think it's probably fair to say, so I'm not sure if you want to wow them with a few words, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, I don't think my Hebrew is better than yours. Is it yes, good like this? Yes. Okay, I don't think it's better, but obviously, I mean, I can maybe start with a small kind of story. Like one year ago, my son and uh, was at home with me, my wife, and uh, my sister was there. And suddenly my son was saying, Hala, Hala. And Hala in Turkish means auntie. And my sister was running to me, He's saying hala, he's saying auntie to me, he's saying auntie. I said, I never taught them aunt in Turkish. So, and then Emma was looking it up, it means bread. And I said, no, no, he means bread, so he goes from nursery. So, yeah. But first of all, really, uh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, more than happy to be here and sharing the stage with you. We did many times in different countries. We were in India, we were in America. And uh, it's a fantastic journey. We are on together. I mean, it's not just you and me. I mean, Charlie and Jack sitting there as well. We started all this kind of thing together and uh, I'm really looking forward to even do more in future. And hopefully we can do something nice here together today and for such a cause, I'm more than happy to be here and do something. Thank you. I'm obviously interested in, I know I, um, even though I've heard your stories quite a few times now, which means I can set them up for you quite nicely, hopefully, is, you know, I think there's a, a big mystique attached to um, football, to football agents more generally to the world of football that, that people see and actually what actually occurs um, in practice. But I remember the story, one of the stories that you tell um, a lot is actually your journey into football in the first place and to try and convince your parents that being a football agent was for you and maybe just share, share some of those ideas early on. I always wanted to become a teacher. So that was actually, I, I love teaching, I love uh, making other people better especially younger ones, I love giving back. But for my parents, or especially my father, he said, doctor or lawyer. So that was the choice I had. And uh, so he's coming from a very poor background. My father couldn't go to school because of no money back in Turkey. My grandfather couldn't send him to school, which was over an hour away, the next big city to go. So he needed to work at the farm, but he had always a dream my son will study. So, and I was sitting there, I want to become a teacher. My father wants me to become a lawyer. 
you know, so I can't make him unhappy. He's my father, so he did so much for me, sacrificed his life. So how can I make him happy and how can I be happy? So I decided, okay, I study law and uh, become a lawyer and then I go the academic career. So I did three masters in different countries. I did my doctor in law in Germany. So, and then I was a lawyer, my father was happy and I was an academic and teaching at university. Maybe it was a better thing then in the end because I wasn't a teacher at school, I was a teacher at university. And uh, becoming an agent, it's uh, actually happened because I followed my passion, which is teaching. So a lot of people ask me, how do you become an agent? And then I say, look, I just followed my passion in life, and that's teaching. And I was teaching as a sports lawyer at that time, when I did my doctor-in-law. I saw there is no education for agents. And I realized that's a niche, so why no one is teaching these upcoming agents? And then I said, okay, I set up seminars in different countries in Europe, and I was going to these places, and I was teaching people who want to become an agent, or who is already an agent, and wants to learn how to act as an, or how to work as an agent. And this brought me actually to family members who wanted to represent their kids. And one by one, they asked me, hey, oh, okay, you're a young lawyer. Uh, would you like to help us in this deal? And that deal, and suddenly I was in the business, which is not my favorite job, I have to say. I still love teaching more than anything else. Even I represent football players uh, in different countries. But my final goal in life is becoming a professor and that's what I'm working on it right now. And I think what would be um, what would be interesting. Come on, get with the program. Um, what would be interesting, I think, for, for people to hear about is I think lots of people either want to get to become a football agent in lo through lots of different ways. Um, your actual journey to become a football agent. So you talked about doing educational courses um, and then uh, football agents coming and listening because you had to pass an exam at that time. Could you tell us about how that beginning of that relationship with Mesut, for example, started as a result of, um, of that process? So, um, as I said, I was teaching and one day I got a phone call from Mesut, his father, and actually I was uh, in London. Funny enough, I don't know if I told her Jack and Charlie. I was actually in Oxford, and I was doing some research for my doctor. So and uh, so the money actually I was doing from teaching, I was investing again into education. Like I was coming to the law library in Oxford, and I was doing research for my doctor thesis. And then I got a phone call, and then it was a father, and he said, um, "Yeah, we would like to come here to Düsseldorf and teach us. Would you like to teach us?" me, Mesut's brother, the other five employees in the marketing company about how to do boots deal, how to negotiate a contract, PR, media. And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I started once a month flying from Istanbul to uh, Dusseldorf and teaching them. And after six months, uh, the family asked me, would you be interested in becoming his lawyer? And then I said, oh, you know what? I have a lot to do with my PhD and I'm into it and it's difficult. So I went then to Madrid to meet Mesut. And uh, so the agreement we did was, I always love to negotiate. I said, look, I can work three days a week for you as your lawyer. The other two days in the week, I need to work on my PhD. I need to go to the library. And the two, week, uh, two days at the weekend. That means four days I work with my doctor and three days I can work for you. That's how I started. And six months later, we were just sitting in a hotel in Dusseldorf. And it was literally the whole family members, other than the father, everyone was there. And then he said, Erkut, we just took a family decision and we want you to be the agent. From now on, you represent me as an agent. Is it okay? 
so I have never done it on that level. Uh, but if I can go on with my doctor, uh, then I will accept it. So you have to accept as well that I do my PhD. They said, okay, that's fine, but you start. So that's literally how it started. So I never gave up my passion for nothing in life. So and I would do never in my life. The, the journey effectively starts with probably one of the most high profile, at least potentially high profile players in world football that not as has come to you, but you, you've come to them, rather you, they've come to you with that educational piece, with the building of trust as a trusted lawyer to then actually going to um, become the actual agent. Um, I'd be interested just to go chronologically then, how did you find the negotiations that happened at various stages of Mezit's career and then obviously from an international perspective as well, the um, acclaim and award that he had as a result um, how did those first few years go as an extremely high-profile agent for an extremely high-profile player? Um, it wasn't easy and because people think if you have uh, high-profile clients, you've done it. I mean, to come to a certain level in that business is difficult and some might work in the football agency world here. But to remain on that level is 10 times harder. So that was people. The pressure is unbelievable. To deliver on a high level every day, it's unbelievable. To looking after a football player like Mesut Ozil or equally, there are some other players like that, is like looking after 25, 30 medium range players every day. So the amount of work is unbelievable. The amount of opportunities on commercial deeds, on media appearances and so on is so much. It never ends. So for me, it was like so much from the beginning and I needed to learn and I was looking after him and didn't have any clients. There was like one, two young players in Germany and people were telling me, why don't you take more clients? You have one of the biggest clients playing Real Madrid, take more. And I, I can't do that. I need, you know, I can't take more clients because I can't deliver. And I can, I think I can give him the best service if I give my whole time into that client because he's so much work. And that a lot of people didn't understand, but that was, I never changed. So I took really less clients, I never had a lot of clients, and then I realized five, six years ago, I need to build a team to be, to be able to take more clients. And that's what I started doing like here in London. I'm taking people from all over the world, I teach them, they come to my offices, and then I send them back to their countries. And now we are a team of eight, eight, Jack, seven or eight. Jack is the first one actually, I started teaching, he's there. And so that's kind of the team is now there and every team member in the countries in Europe signing now players and we're growing every day. So that's kind of... So this might be a, this might be a question for your wife uh, rather than you, but you know, when I'm working with a lot of different agents um, across lots of different countries as well, the life of um, a football lawyer sometimes can be pretty hectic as, as Holly well knows. But the life um, and being the wife of a football agent, it must be horrendous. I mean, I, Holly thinks I'm on WhatsApp enough, but you know, you guys I see are you know constantly traveling, constantly working weekends, uh, 24/7. Um, you're in the service industry more than most, really, because as much as the high-profile signing looks great, actually, it's the 365 days a year, other stuff that you're having to do to maintain all of that. What does an average week or month look for you and how, how does that vary accordingly? It's really difficult to say because literally every day is different than the day before. 
So Anil never had one week look like the same one. I have a lot of friends, they work as a lawyer, which I know like from the past or as an accountant, they have approximately the kind of the same week. They go Monday to Friday to office, Saturday, Sunday off. It's kind of what they have. They go twice to gym, watch football with friends, that's it. So, uh, so our life is totally like, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. So I was here on the way in the car and one of the football players' father called me. And then he said, I could, um, actually 20 minutes later, the player himself called me as well because I said to the father, I can't do tomorrow, but I'm in Swansea. So tomorrow we go with Jack to Swansea, one of our young players signs a professional contract. It's his first professional contract as a young player, we worked hard for it. And so, and I talked even with Jack today in the office about that. And then the father called me on the way and trying to convince me to be in Crystal Palace tomorrow for actually a bigger deal. It's not about that deal, it's about, then you say, you can't. I said, I can't, look, I have a client, I need to be in Swansea. 20 minutes later, on the way, the player calls. Erko, please, you know, I'm just on my way to London now. The paperwork will be done tomorrow morning. Uh, can you be just there? My father's coming as well. He needs you next to me. And then I said, then you're thinking, like, well, you, you, you can't, right? It's impossible, like. And, and I said, no, I'm going to Swansea. The next day, on Saturday morning, I'm flying to Germany, uh, to Stuttgart, driving two hours to a place where I meet a family member and a football player. He's on a tournament there, indoor tournament. The player who plays in Austria, which we want to sign, he's a national team player for Austria, youth national. Saturday evening in a hotel, we meet the father and the boy. Hopefully, we sign a contract. And Sunday afternoon, I'm flying back to London. So the whole weekend, I'm gone literally. And the next week, to be honest, I don't know wherever I will be. I, from, from now on, I know probably Monday I will be in London. But if there's a deal coming up in any place in Europe, so you have to go because it's transfer windows. So now there's so many deals happening and you can't say you're not going, and especially for our own players. Yesterday I had to talk one hour. So I went out, so put the son, my son to sleep. And then I always in the night, I have this approximately one hour where I walk the dog and I had a schedule on that time who I do call, who couldn't talk before. And, and one was my client, like he was desperate, he can't go to Scotland. Scotland, a team from the Scottish Premier League made an offer to a German team. We can't get the boy out. For days now we are struggling and the club doesn't want to sell him. The boy is nearly crying on the phone and you're like a mentor. You're like on the phone and say, come on, you know it's hard work, but you will make it in future. And I'm, it's like, I'm walking the dog and I'm thinking, I still have three people to call. So the dog walking sometimes could be one and a half hour. And my wife's saying, where have you been? Like, where have you been all the time? So we want to watch something. Like, where have you been? So, well, the dog's so, so tired. Why is the dog so tired? He's very old now. <laughs> um, working with Urka, uh, actually the main benefit, and then of traveling with Urka, is Urka has, I don't know what kind of air miles card um, with British Airways, but whatever card he has, he doesn't queue for anything, ever. So with the f remember when we went to Miami and then Mumbai, literally I just go on his coattails. There's like a special, there's a special little avenue I didn't know existed in Heathrow Airport that I think is just for you, for all your air miles. We go through, like they know your name. <laughs> it's fa fantastic. So um, yeah, they do. Um, so the other thing that I was wanting to, uh, the other story that I thought would be interesting to share um, with the audience is, um, as long as you're able to, to tell it, is um, the fun experience you had um, with Mezard 
when you were heading out um, for some dinner one time and um, there was some paparazzi out in the uh, out waiting for you and um, and what happened as a result there? The funny story, it was like three, three years, four years ago now and it was Champions League night, it's a long time ago actually, three, four years for Arsenal. I don't know if there are any Arsenal fans. Probably next year is not even EuroLeague, it looks like. <laughs> so it's getting... And uh, I thought there's no one official from Arsenal here, right? Not that I have some problems later. <laughs> so it was a Champions League night and they lost. And uh, I was at his house after the game and then we decided to go out and eat something. So an outside paparazzi was waiting in the car. And while we were driving out, I could see, okay, they're hiding in the car. And uh, we just came out of the gate and suddenly two guys jump out of the car, took their photo, uh, the, the machine, like, it was like really bright, you know, when they do like 100 times in front of you. And I told to my client, like to, uh, to, to Mesa, just drive very slowly, like literally like, so that we just passed them up very slowly. So we were driving so slowly, suddenly one of the journalists pushed his arm against the side mirror and uh, and started screaming and fall down. Yeah, he's uh, like acting like as we hit him, right? And then we were laughing, like, look at him, what he's doing, you know, like an idiot. So we went, we went to the restaurant, we had our food in Golders Green, coming back, police cars, ambulance, <laughs> police were looking for us, that's what's going on. So the police came into the house and said, yeah, um, you hit the journalist and uh, and then just left. I said, no, we didn't hit any journalists. He just created this scenario, you know, we didn't do anything. So we explained and then we said, look, there are cameras here, you should check them. And there were like four policemen sitting in the house, like we were sitting there at the kitchen table and talking. Then they made some alcohol tests with the player and everything was fine. And in the end they said, yeah, you know, we know how journalists and these paparazzi guys sometimes can be. And some of the poli policemen were Arsenal fans. So, and uh, the, the guy from the restaurant, the owner came over as well when he heard police and stuff like that. And he had four tickets we gave him before for the game at the weekend in our box at the Emirates. So he got the idea suddenly to invite the four policemen to the box. <laughs> so he said, uh, don't you want to come this weekend for uh, the Arsenal, I don't know what game is what, uh, to Mazadoza's box so we, we can watch it together. I said, yeah, why not? So they took the four tickets and I thought, it's done, you know? And then there was weekend, we were at the game, and other journalists, this time, photographed the policeman <laughs> sitting in Mesut Ozil's box and make a story out of it that we are bribing policemen that they dropped the case against him. <laughs> so there was a hearing at police station and everything, and I was explaining, guys, we didn't. I mean, there's cameras checked, we didn't hit anyone, so it was a mess. And the policeman had uh, dis disciplinary proceedings, something like that. But in the end, everything was fine. They should just let the chief of police know that they got tickets and they needed to ask. So they should be able to go then, but they didn't. But I mean, this happens, like paparazzi is crazy, especially in this country. So I'm born and raised in Germany, but here it's a different world. I mean, it's unbelievable. How many policemen do you bribe on a weekly basis? <laughs> we can talk there about that. There's some no. <laughs> um, 
So just changing track a tiny bit because I know, I, I know one of the questions that always um, gets asked um, and is always of interest to people is everybody always sees the, the narrative of the footballer which is um, well paid, um, only has to play football for a living, um, glamorous, easy life, um, why don't they put more effort in, why don't they do this, why don't they otherwise do it, but what, what a lot of people don't see and don't necessarily advertise all the time um, is the, the fantastic work that players do for different charities, for different organisations, etc. So if I just give a couple of examples, some of the stuff that um, Holly and I do over the Christmas period that a lot of players, including some that um, Urquhart works for, has been fantastic with, is um, Ask Puma or Adidas or Nike to be able to donate um, merchandise, whatever else it might be, um, for particular children's hospices or um, children's <coughs> schools or whatever else it might be, um, kids in hospital at Christmas time. And I know that one of the things that I'm, I'm always very keen to change the narrative on because I see a lot of good um, that um, players and talented people do who are in the public eye um, is good deeds that don't necessarily get shown day in, day out. And it's easy to be able to take Meza or Aguero or anybody else um, see um, their behaviour on a pitch and think that defines them as a person when actually it's usually their words and actions off the pitch that doesn't necessarily get seen all the time that more likely defines them as people and as human beings. So what would be just really quite interesting to um, give a bit of insight on, you told a great story, hopefully you can talk about it as well, is the, uh, the message that is in Mesut's kitchen um, from his mum and the type of stuff that Mezit does, which he won't necessarily publicise to everyone. I know a lot of it as well because I see it. But it would just be good to, to share some nice stories about the, the great stuff that goes on behind the scenes sometimes. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me personally, it's very important to work with clients who have that narrative, who thinks about doing a lot of stuff off the pitch. Uh, which makes it more interesting for me to work and there's a sense there's something you can do so these football players they they earn a lot of money yes they have a huge reach but what do you do with that if you're using that in a good cause can you create something with that can you help others with that and this is something we work literally every day yeah i mean uh, charlie's here he knows like what we're doing with kids in different countries i mean um so we started for just one example in 2010, since then, Mesut is operating kids worldwide. And this, this, this thing grew by time every year. We did like huge operations with German doctors in Brazil in 2014. We did in 2016 in Africa, in Russia. So we, we literally sent doctors, Swiss doctors or German doctors or any into different countries and do operations. And uh, now, this summer, or last summer, when he got married, he announced he want to operate 1,000 kids as a gift for his wedding, as a wedding gift. He said, let's operate 1,000 kids worldwide. And then I said, that costs a lot of money, right? Operating 1,000 kids is not like uh, flying the doctors there and so on. And uh, he said, look, I earn a lot of money. If I don't help now, when will I help? If I have it now, if I don't share it now, the wealth, what I have. I'm coming from a poor background, he said. I didn't have much. My mom was going cleaning to two different schools every day, so we had a living. So I have so much, so I have to give it now, which, which I love, you know, no, because that letter in his house, what his mom, what his mom left is what he is today. 
So when we, when you move from Real Madrid to Arsenal, so that was the time when I moved in from Germany to London as well to be closer to him and to work. And then there was in the kitchen, there's a letter from his mom hanging till today. And it says, my son Mesut, like not 100%, but 99%, I can tell you. It says, my son Mesut, we all are in this world a guest. Like you, we, everyone, we will all go. Yeah, and God give you a gift. You're talented, not like your brothers or sisters. So you make a huge living, a lot of money, which they don't do. But God didn't give it to you just for yourself. He gave it to you to share with these who are needed, who are in need and who don't have that what you have. And if you don't do that, you are not my son and don't call me mom. And then the mom signed it like, and this is every day he sees that. And that's what he drives him. He always tells me, Eckert, what can we do? What, what else can we do? We invite all these kids with cancer, for example, they're coming always to the box. He had a relationship with kids for over years and some of them died. So he knows, he knew them like the family. So we do a lot, so he always knows. And uh, for example, in three weeks time, I'm going to India, to Bangalore. So the doctors, 10 doctors coming over, they will be in one hospital in Bangalore and 12 days there will be operations. It's all financed by him. And I will be there myself to see like really what's happening there as well and give that to other players hopefully as well, the thing to do something good. And I'm proud of that. And that really drives me and gives me more passion to do more with these players. Thank you for that. Um, and I think, I, look, for me that's a very inspirational message that doesn't usually get out as much because obviously um, Schadenfreude sells, people like to hear the negativity of stuff for lots of different reasons. And if I just give one more example, it was about um, two years ago. Uh, one of the players who work with Gerard Delefeo when he was, he was alone at Everton. There was a social media clip which went um, viral on Twitter about two or three years ago. And it was um, uh, a boy, maybe 12 or 13 years old, he had cerebral palsy. And he was um, playing um, and training with his dad um, in local park in Liverpool. And he was doing skills, going in between cones. Um, scoring in the goal, but doing with himself and his dad, um, and then you know slide scoring away as he scores the winner in the last minute. And Delafeo is on his back now. The guys that work with um, Delafeo picked it up, um, got in touch with the dad um, on Twitter, um, invited him to um, a game. He was on the pitch for half time, scored a goal in front of the, the Gladys Street, which is obviously fantastic for him. And Everton did even better, where they then had the goal of the month competition um, on their website, which he then won. Um, and so it's just from, it can sometimes be from very small things, good, lovely things can happen. So um, just to give you maybe five minute warning, we're gonna get some Q&A going in a few minutes. So get your questions ready. We've got probably about 20, 25 minutes time just to, to get some questions to Erka, try and be nice as possible. Um, the one question I maybe wants to end on, or maybe just have uh, two questions on, um, well, do two questions first. Is you know the the perception of a football agent generally isn't great um, for for lots of different reasons. People think that football agents just um, make one phone call and earn hundreds of millions, well, not hundreds, well, a few million rayola, maybe hundreds of millions, but generally uh, millions of pounds. Um, what I, I can see exactly what you do in your day to day job to try and. Um, uh, confound that image to a degree. How, how, 
how and what and would a what do agents do to be able to earn that reputation sometimes? And are there good agents around that actually are trying to tell a different story? Um, I've always been very radical about that. I said, if we have good people in the football clubs, we will have good agents as well. So the major problem in my eyes lies within the clubs, not within the agents. Because these clubs don't need to use these so-called dodgy or stealing agents. They're there, yeah, like in any other business. But certain clubs and certain people working inside the clubs, they love them. They love to steal money. So that's why agents' commissions are sometimes so high. Yeah? And the money is getting out from the club. And the best way to get back into the pockets is through an agent. Yeah? Let's give him not 5% commission, let's give him 15 And then so he can give my cousin another 75 back. So that's why a lot of clubs is no wonder working always with the same agents. There are some patterns, you can just follow them. And there to, to understand, there are agents who are representing players and there are agents who are representing the club side in the same deal. Let's say I'm an agent and represent you. And let's say West Ham United wants you. Only West Ham? Yeah, only West Ham. <laughs> and we together, you're my player, we're going to West Ham United and have a meeting. And suddenly, two other agents sitting there. And West Ham United says, these two agents represent West Ham United in this deal. And I'm telling myself, why do you guys need two agents? You have a sport director in football? He can do the whole work, doesn't he? Why do you have to put two agents into this deal? And I'm the agent of the player? You don't know. No, they need these agents to bring money out and then to bring it back to the pockets of these guys. It's very simple. So no one is talking about the agents on the club side. Everyone is blaming us, the agents of the player. Our commission is set. It could be 5%, 7%, 10%, whatever. Some agents might get even more. But who's talking about the agents of the clubs? Same agents? I mean, we are all registered at the Football Federation in England. We have all the same things, but they're representing the club and I represent the player. I can also represent in a dealer club, but the money which generated on that side is massive and no one asked the club, hey club, why do you pay so much money to these agents? No one, they always, the clubs are stronger, they have a bigger lobby, they know the people in the papers, they can always blame the bad agents. Yeah, we pay so much money to these dodgy and bad and these, you know, greedy agents. No, 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 it's not on that side, it's on the club side. i give you one example, I was also sitting at FIFA at the commission and working for the new regulations to change the agents' regulations. And I said in that commission, the first rule it needs to be changed to have the agents' world better is just one single sentence. If anyone inside the football club, anyone working for a football club, getting money from an agent should be banned from football all life. And they said, no, we can't do that. So as you know, if they can't even get this rule there out to ban people inside football clubs stealing money, then you understand what's going on. I mean, it's simple. I mean, the problem lies 100% within the clubs. Of course, there are bad agents, good agents, like good lawyers, bad lawyers, good accountants, bad. But the, the, the way they steal the money, it's come from the club and not from the agent. And that's the problem. A lot of people don't talk about that because they say, I could you're destroying the industry we are in. I say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not stealing money. If you want to steal money, you, you can, I'm not. I, I learned that you can't spend money you steal. We can't, we say in Turkish, you can't eat bread 
from the money you've stolen. If you buy bread with the money you've stolen, it's not good for you and for your family. That's how I grew up. But these people don't care, for example. And football player never had that. Nowadays, it's changed. And the it's going to be that athletes will becoming more important than clubs. So that's where we're going now. And you can't, you can't compete. Clubs know that and they realize it. Because I just give you an example. Ronaldo goes from Real Madrid to Juventus Turin and they sell millions of jerseys. And all these fans who are buying the jerseys, they're not Juventus Turin fan, they're Ronaldo fan. None of them supports the team, they support the player. And they have a huge reach. I mean, like, for example, Mesut has a double reach than the club on his media. His own media is like double the size than the club. If he says something, he reads more people. I mean, that's a massive power you have. And media is so powerful. If all you know how powerful media is, and, and the players have that, and they're growing. And Mesut is the most followed player in the Premier League. So when he posts or tweets, it goes all over the world. And it's all surrounding everywhere. And people are asking us sometimes, are you guys working with the PR agency for these things? We don't, it's just our team, Jack, Charlie, it's us. About different players' um, pathways, that some players, when they're getting scholarship deals, will be hopefully superstars. Some players, most players actually won't become superstars and will be lucky to be mid-range footballers who have um, decent careers, but will need to have another career afterwards. My question for you is how, how do you go about picking, I say if that's the right way to be able to do it, pick the type of players, is it their families, is it their upbringings, is it the way that they conduct themselves? Hopefully I'm putting towards a story that I'm sure you'll tell about the rep contracts and stuff um, in Germany from a while back maybe. The, the question is generally, um, as an agent, you obviously want to develop long-term relationships with your players. How do you go about that? And have there been instances where you've actually stopped relationships because actually you don't think it's been um, productive to do so? So I learned very quickly that one of the most important things is that the coach should want you and not the club. Yeah. So in some cases, uh, the club, you are, they say you're a club player or a coach player. And I think especially for a young player, it, development is very important in minutes that the player plays is very important. So the player shouldn't choose the club with the money. The player should choose the team, the coach who sees that player, I like him, I will play him, I will develop him. So it's a long-term commitment rather than a short-term. So that's for me, especially with young players, very, very important to to go there where I think the coach, so with the Scottish team, the coach wanted him, but the club is not telling him, right? We are in a dilemma. The boy says, I'm, I'm, I'm getting depressed, I wanna go here, right? And then I'm saying, yes, but we can't do your contract, your former agent at that deal, not me. So. In the end, so this is like, this is top. Like the coach should want you. And also important is how long you sign a contract. Because if you're under 18, a player can't sign more than three years, which is like, okay. But if you're above 18 or above, you can sign five years contract. In some countries like Spain, even longer. So the duration of the contract is very important. And you have to think how old is the player? How long will he stay there? And what's the next step? Yeah, I think that kind of duration part is very important. And um, I think for me personally, is uh, what I talk with the players, very important in transfers is like, 
they have to really want it and believe it. They shouldn't do it like driven by something else if they don't believe it just to make a move because they have to make a move or so. It's really like if the passion is there, if they believe in the team, if they believe in that move. So it's like we are kind of a mentor. I feel myself like I'm more a mentor than an agent. It's like preparing them for the next game, talking with them. It's really like working with them. Like I'm kind of a psychologist by now for football players maybe. I'm more professional than someone who's working with players probably because 15 years I'm doing that. So I think that's very, very important for me as well. Jack, did I forget something? Yeah. I mean, yeah, these, these are the three, I think, aspects I think is very important. There are other aspects if you go into details with bonuses, how you structure it. I think there should be always a way to get out again sometimes if it doesn't work. So having a buy old clothes, but these are more topics that they know better than me because even I'm a lawyer, but I'm not in a day-to-day -day contract site like Dan. So he's a specialist in that. So I would rather ask him, for example, Dan, so what should we be careful about? What can we do? What do you have new ideas? So he would help us with these things. So my job is really maintaining the relationship with the club, trying to get offers more on that side. Sport, um, the same type of stigma is not attached to players or athletes running down their contract. It is very common for players, granted there's no transfer fees equivalent in NBA or NFL or otherwise, to play for their and play out their contract and then move at the end of their contract. In the UK and Europe and in other leagues, that is seen somehow as showing um, uh, disloyalty to, to the club because they're not signing a new deal and they want to get more money by going somewhere else. The, the truth in all of that is that the agent will be playing an extremely prominent role in all of that. It might still be that he signs a new deal. I, I doubt it, but who knows. I think what is simply happening is um, the agent is making sure that the player probably um, is uh, not getting injured, um, might still be playing a number of games, but because it's January the 1st, or past January 1st now, he can sign a pre-contract with a new club. And the economic effect of that really is, Ericsson's probably, depending on which Spurs fan you talk to, either a five million pound player or a 40 million pound player. Um, but the truth is, is that instead of that money going to the new club, um, he is going to be able to attract a huge signing on bonus, huge loyalty bonuses, very large wages, and a very large um, agent commission. Um, I'm not just looking it up at that particular moment, but uh, yeah, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, running out the contract is uh, since the Bosman case we have. Before, even if the contract was running out, the club, other club had to pay a transfer fee. But since the Bosman case, it changed. And uh, was it in 90s, the end of the night? Oh. <laughs> 95, yeah. Since then, if the contract runs out, the player can go anywhere he wants. And in, in, instead of a transfer fee, he gets a high commission or signing on fee. And the agent can demand as well much more money. I mean, it's also a danger. A lot of people don't see that. Let's say the player's got injured now, right? Next game, he's got an injury six months seven months eight months the clubs who actually were interested might think no mm, okay he's a ninja player he can't play till next year we don't need him maybe we should get another one or he's not that value anymore we're not paying and in the end you end up maybe earning less than you would have earned in that club if you would have extended the contract so there's a risk 
Yeah, and some some players are riskful. They want to go that risk. And some players are very, they want to really save. They say, you know, don't wait too long, just sign a contract. I don't want to be paid, you know, I'm fine, you know, family, I have kids, I just don't want to risk it. So it's really case by case. And unfortunately, some agents bring their clients to the club where the commission is the highest for the agent. Unfortunately, I know some player, high profile player, and you sometimes think, why did that player go to that club? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And that's because the agent's getting more commission from that club, not because it's the better club for the player. And this happens a lot of time because what happens is the agent is going to club A and ask, how much is my, let's, let's say the salary for the player in each club would be approximately same. Let's say a player leaves now in summer and there are five options. And the salary would be approximately the same. And then the, and then the agents will start, okay, club A, how much commission do you pay me? Two million, that's not enough. Club C, oh, you pay me four million, five million, seven million, eight million. Eight million commission in the next five years. That agent will go then to his player and will say, you know what? I had this talks with Club A, these idiots, they don't really, you know, the way they, you know, talking about you is so bad. I, I don't think it's the right club for you, you know, I know, but, and the coach never mentioned you even in the meeting. I don't think even the coach really wants you there. So we shouldn't go to that club. And Club B, mm, you know what, no, no, no. I had very bad experience in the, uh, in the past with them. For you, the best club is Club D, believe me. They really pay what you want, the coach wants you. It's all a lie. Yeah? The player will believe because he's not there when the meeting's happening. Yeah? He will trust his agent or lawyer and then in the end the deal happens and six months later he's unhappy. It happens all the time. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.